Welcome to Arcanex Sessions, episode 137. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-host, Ken. This week, we're talking with Carlo Aiello, an LA-based designer and the founder of Evolo. Our conversation focuses on his very popular annual skyscraper competition, print publishing, and product design. Well, thanks so much for uh, coming out all the way to our studio in Pasadena today. It's nice to finally meet. We've been following Evolo and your your own personal work for a long time. So it's good to put a face to the name. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited. So just to start off, judging from your accent, I assume mm -hmm. that you grew up outside of the country. So exactly. Where, so I'm from Mexico City. Mexico City? Mexico okay. City, yeah. Uh -huh. So I was there since uh, I was born in 1978 and then stayed there for the first 25 years of my life. After that, I went to New York, to Columbia University to do my master's in architecture. And I have been here since then. What did you do your undergraduate in? Architecture as well. Oh, okay. Yes. And uh -huh. that was in Mexico City at the UNAM, which is a large university in, in the country. Yeah. So I'm interested to hear about your experience at Columbia because you are clearly, you know, of the entrepreneurial mindset. You've got a lot exactly. of things going on that we'll talk about today. How do you feel like that's just kind of been the, your personality or the type of person that you've been? Or did, did Columbia in any way kind of uh, kind of shape the direction that you ended up going in after school? No, I think uh, with Columbia, what, what I received were the tools kind of like to do something else besides architecture as well. So I was always intrigued in doing something else besides architecture, you know, have many passions itself, like art and then design itself, like product design. But obviously, I think with Columbia, you get the tools, you know, not just by thinking, but also the skills, you know, in terms of uh, software and also in terms of research and how do you kind of like get your mind toward different goals. Yeah. So after you left Columbia, you worked at both Asymptote and SOM. Yes. And what in what capacity were you? So I was the project architect for for both companies. So for Asymptote Architecture, I stayed there for about two years after graduating. That was back in 2004 till 2006. After that, I went to and we did a few competitions. We were doing, um, you know, the new Guggenheim Museum for Guadalajara in Mexico which we lost to Enrique Norton, 10 Architectus. I mean, the project was not built, but um, that was an exciting time there. A lot of work, but I mean, it was like being at Columbia. I mean, it was a lot of work, a lot of all-nighters, but it was, you know, very exciting, let's say. After that, I went to SOM and I stayed there for a few years. I think it was like three or four years. And after that, I decided to move to Los Angeles and kind of like started my own things. With SOM, I was also kind of working on you know, skyscrapers, et cetera, in the Middle East. And we're also doing something in, in the U.S. So, I mean, that's that's a pretty big leap. I mean, you, you came from Mexico City to New York. New York has a very specific identity. You were working in New York offices. You studied in New York. And then you decided, okay, I'm going to start from scratch on my own on the other side of the country yeah. in Los Angeles. What inspired that? Is that a vision that you had for a while? Or is that kind of a spontaneous decision that you made? So, I guess... Um, at the same time that I was working for these offices, I kind of like started with uh, a couple of friends, uh, Evolo, the Evolo magazine. We started to do the print journal and some books. And obviously we started the, the competition, the skyscraper competition. And I guess that was part of the, you know, the first step into doing something else besides architecture. So are you the founder of Evolo? Yes. And did you start that in New York? 
Yes, this was when I was doing when I was living in New York. So Evolo is both a from from how I understand it, it's it's a magazine, it's a print mm-hmm. print magazine, an online magazine, and it hosts the skyscraper competition. Exactly. And and you also publish other titles. Exactly. So at the beginning we kind of focused on the print magazine and the skyscraper competition. And then what we did is that after a few years of doing the skyscraper competition, we wanted to really take advantage of these great ideas and broadcast them more than just by online. So what we did is that a few years of the competition, we compiled them into different books. So right now we are on three books of the skyscraper competition every three years. So the next one, the fourth edition will come out next year. And there we include about 300 of the best projects that we have received in the previous years, let's say. And it has been very successful in terms of how people receive it and they're very excited about it. Then the second phase was actually doing more books and, you know, different people that wanted to write a book about architecture or academics that wanted to also write a book, etc. So they approached us and we have published a few books with them as well. Okay, so going back to the competition, Evolo... Is that how you pronounce it? Evolo? Evolo, yeah. Evolo. I think it's, you know, as someone, we, not only do we run Arconnect here, but we also run Bustler, which is a website exactly. uh, focused primarily on competitions. So we've got a pretty good perspective on the world of competitions. And Evolo has been probably the most or one of the most popular competitions out there. The premise is that it's to design skyscraper, right? I mean, there's not much of a more specific definition in the brief. Exactly. So the idea is that um, for us, obviously, it's very exciting, a skyscraper, and then how we can, you know, introduce different things about architecture and how architecture can modify the urban context through a skyscraper. So that was kind of like the premise behind the competition. But what we also wanted to do is to give enough freedom to the participants or to, to the architects to envision something that is radically new and innovative. And in a sense, we can like follow the steps of, you know, futurists like uh, Antonio Santelia, et cetera, that what could be the possibility of architecture, you know, with rules, but not as tight in a sense. So like to give enough freedom to the participants to come up with something radically new that probably right now would be sometimes not feasible or impossible and uh, out of this world. But maybe, I don't know, 20 years from now, these concepts could be pretty much what architecture is. So that's what's our idea, you know, to uncover that innovation. And then maybe in a few years, those ideas could be possible. So what was it about the skyscraper typology specifically that made you choose to go in that direction rather than kind of exploring architectural opportunities in in other types of... So I guess one of the ideas was that, as we know, you know, uh, urbanization has been tremendous in the last few years, you know, how, you know, more than 50% of the population is right now in cities, you know, and how can we address that in terms of, you know, housing and commercial, etc. And we thought like maybe the best example the best gender would be a skyscraper. And maybe that was kind of like how we how we thought about it and, you know, how we perceive it as, as the future, you know, in a sense. I mean, skyscrapers have kind of historically been a very, very popular type of building that people, you know, for people to look at. There's been, you know, the skyscraper forums online. Exactly. Very highly trafficked website that really just looks at the skyscraper. What do you think it is that draws people to skyscrapers? Well, I think it's, 
the skyscraper, I guess, by also by definition, is kind of like, you know, a frontier of what architecture could be, you know, like it's, it's, you know, all the different aspects, technological aspects of architecture that need to be implemented, you know, to be able to build these structures. And obviously the great impact that they have in, in, you know, in cities as well. So I guess also it's our fascination for, you know, how tall we can build, how far we can go, you know, as, a, as humans, you know, and then everything that needs to be thought kind of like to make a reality out of them. So I guess that that's why, you know, and also, you know, the different countries, I think it's also a geopolitical statement, you know, who can build the, you know, the highest structure, you know, et cetera. So I guess that's part of this fascination that yeah. goes around. Yeah. An obsession to build yeah. the tallest building in Moscow, for example. Exactly. <laughs> um, so watching the results from the Evolo competition over the years has been, um, has been pretty inspiring, you know, seeing the kind of creativity and the kind of ideas that, that are coming out of the community when, when submitting these, these entries. Has the response and the submissions to the competition, have they, have they surprised you? Yeah, definitely. I think they have surpassed our expectations. You know, the, the amount of creativity that is behind of, you know, the majority of the, of the entries, it's, it's outstanding, you know. So the first first few years, we were really amazed of what we were actually uncovering, you know, and giving the participants the potential kind of like to express these ideas, you know, and, you know, for mediums like Archinet kind of like to publish them and, you know, for the general public to understand them. So, yes, we were really surprised about, you know, the quality of the entrance, the innovation behind them, you know, and the potential of, of you know, of architecture in the future. Yeah, definitely. The competition's also been picked up a lot by some very large mainstream publications, publications yeah. outside of architecture. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know that New York Times has has written about it. Yeah, the Wall Street Journal, the you know Financial Times, etc. Yes. What do you feel is the? Um, what have you noticed has been the kind of the the reaction or the curiosity about the competition from people outside of the architecture industry? So we have two different things going on here. So the first one is that people is really amazed about, you know, the potential of architecture and what actually architects are thinking right now. So they say like, this is out of this world. This is, you know, this is the future, et cetera. And then we have another, you know, set of, of minds, let's say that they say like very rational in a sense, they say like, this is impossible and this is a waste of time energy, resources, et cetera. You know, what are you guys thinking about? You know, and, and then, you know, we have these two things colliding, but then what it's interesting that there, it becomes to be a discussion between these two different poles and sometimes very good things emerge out of it. You know, like the conversation is really what it's important here, you know? So the ideas are not left in a book, but the ideas are, you know, we, we're showcasing these ideas and it's something that it's important for, for a lot of people, you know, to start discussing about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's really interesting. Yeah. How do you typically respond to critics that say that the um, some of the the entries are so like absurd or you know are are so unrealistic? Yeah. So I guess in every project there there are certain things that seems to be very unreal, but I think what they have to understand or what critics have to understand that sometimes these projects is not like a finished product. It's not a finished building. It is not a finished proposal. This, these are just ideas. Ideas, and maybe uh, some of the ideas could be out of this world, but there are some ideas within the same project that are very real and can be used at this point in time. So it's not actually to see a specific thing about the idea, but to see the overall impact that it could have in the future or to really dissect 
play different ideas and see, well, you know, there is potential here, there's potential there. And you, you don't have to see this as a solution for a specific problem at this point in time. So it's, it's not a specific, you know, answer to a question. It's just a proposal and it has very different things that uh, could be useful for the future or different, you know, just different agendas that they are trying to uncover. Yeah. Have you seen in any of the projects that have been published thus far um, a germ of an idea that you start to maybe maybe it's coming like the past five years or so that you can kind of say, hey, that's that's kind of heading or in the built direction right now. Do you see anything like that? Well, you know, yes. I mean, there's a lot of things, a lot of the different concepts that had been used in the competition, especially, you know, the, the different applications in facades and, and, and different tectonics and tectonic configurations and geometries. It's something very interesting. I and mean, like a lot of the skyscraper right now, you know, and a lot of different type of, you know, geometries that have been used right now have been explored in the, in the competition in the past. And also, you know, how different techniques in the facades, you know, like how to be for, you know, clean energy, harvesting water, harvesting uh, other things have, have started to be using in, in architecture. Yeah, definitely. What do you see as the value of competitions in general? You know, not not just with Evolo, but mm-hmm. outside. Because I know that, you know, there have been people that have said, you know, competitions can take advantage of designers or or requires, you know, so much time and effort into designing and, you know, maybe offering kind of a delusional idea that it will increase their career. But then there's, you know, a lot of alternative arguments against that. What do you see as the value of competitions to the architecture and design industry? No, I think competitions are very valuable. I mean, in in general, I think there are two different things here. One, it would be the ideas competition, that the only goal of the competition is to produce an idea, you know, and it's not going to be built. It's not going to go beyond paper in a sense, you know, at this point in time, maybe later it will become a reality or someone will commission you to start developing something that is related to that idea that kind of like generated from the competition. And then you have a competition that is, you know, specifically for a building, you know. So so I guess you have two different branches. And I think both are, are valuable. I mean, the thing about competition is that it pushes the participants and the architects kind of like to put the best that they can produce, you know, for a specific idea. And, you know, and to be judged and to potentially, you know, recognized for that idea, you know, and, and many of the, of, you know, many, many great architects have been discovered, you know, by, uh, or many great buildings, you know, like the Sydney Opera House, et cetera, they, they, they were discovered because of a competition that maybe without them, that would not be possible. Obviously, the amount of work and the amount of hours that everyone, I mean, if, if you compile, you know, the amount of time that all these architects put into one specific project, you could say that, it, I mean, a lot of people would say that it's a waste of time and resources and energy, but at the same time, it's it's one of the only ways, kind of like almost in a democratic way to kind of to choose the best project for, you know, for a specific thing, you know, like the best proposal for a specific project, let's say. So I, I do see the value in both branches, like in ideas and for actual buildings, you know, they're going to build. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's clearly many different types of competitions and the Evolo competition clearly fits into the ideas. Exactly. Which, in my opinion, is is the most valuable type of competition because it really, it, it gives designers an opportunity to work outside of their typical pragmatic architectural exactly. work. And to be able to share those ideas with with so many other people. Experiment in a sense, yeah. yeah. Speaking of sharing those ideas, so after you started running the competition, you decided to start publishing this work. Exactly. In a book. And each book, is it one year, one competition? No, no. So uh, what we do is that every three years, we compile one book. So 2006, 7, and 8 would be one book. And then 
we're going that way. Yeah. Because we receive so many entries and we also want to compile the best entries, not of one year, but also create this almost, I don't know, like a general idea of what is really happening. You know, so if you see the first, you know, the first book that we published in 2008 about the competition, and then you see the last one that was 2017, you really see the evolution, not only of the competition, but also the evolution of you know, in a sense, architecture as well, you know. What was very interesting is that there was this point maybe like three or four years ago in which everyone was very, it was a very gloomy future, you know, like all these projects were about solving almost like like the end of the world, you know. So you see all these renderings, et cetera, about, you know, like um, pollution, you know, global warming, et cetera. And then architecture was kind of like this savior of, of the world in a sense, you know, and you can see that reflected in the, in the competition and in the proposals, you know, like we are here to solve the problem and you can see, you know, uh, global warming, skyscrapers kind of like to, to put an end on global warming or to protect certain areas, et cetera. So it was, it was, it was very interesting, you know, like how they respond to the overall conception of what is happening in the world right now. Yeah. I mean, that must be really, uh, have you noticed any ideas or technologies that were introduced back when you started doing this that have since become, have since transitioned out of the kind of conceptual idea into the actual architectural application? So I guess one of the, one of the most interesting is, is this idea of, of, um, collecting energy, not just by, you know, by solar panels, et cetera, but what other things could, could generate energy, you know, and then there were some skyscrapers that could collect uh, water from, you know, f- from the fog and specifically in Chile, in the Atacama Desert. And you can see right now that they are actually doing something very similar, you know, which they, it was this uh, phenomenon of they have like a very strong fog in the morning, but it's a desert. And then how do you collect all that water and use for irrigation and transform that desert into something that it's, uh, you know, you can grow plants, trees, foods, et cetera, agriculture, et cetera. So, and it's something that we saw in the, in, in, in the competition and now they are using it for real, you know, not as a skyscraper, but the same idea of, of very similar concept that how the facade was covered with these metal elements kind of like to trap the fog and then make the condensation of water and then utilize that. So that's something that they, it's, it's very real and it's happening right now. Yeah, I remember seeing a lot of research into that when California was suffering from the drought, uh-huh. the extreme drought exactly. a few years ago. So how do you go about editing and laying out the issues of the Evolo book? So the first thing that we do is obviously from, I mean, the editors were never judges of the competition. So everyone is like, the jury is always someone let's say completely impartial from us and obviously from the participants. So the first thing is that obviously the winners and the honorable mentions, they will go into the, into the publication. And after that, we, uh, I mean, the editors, we, we sit down and then we'll look into the, all the other proposals, maybe like the, the ones that were not received a honorable mention, but were right there, you know, almost like honorable mention, et cetera, or very specific topics that are are interesting and we said like okay so how do we edit this so what we did is that we decided to have six different topics within it so it's like maybe a project that deal with technological advances projects that deal with ecology projects that deal with uh, social solutions i don't know if there's an earthquake etc and then a skyscraper could be a shelter etc so so we have these six different topics then we have another one which we call morphotectonic aesthetics and it's the exploration of form etc so what we do is we divide the entries into six different categories, and then we look into the best entries from these different categories, and then we compile that into into the book. And obviously, we invite people to write about it, etc. That's that's pretty much the way that we do it. So, trying to find like a string 
of thought behind all the proposals, let's say, or what did they share in common? And has that been the, the uh, like a consistent approach that you exactly. use for yes. each of the books? From the second book to the to the fourth book, that has been the approach. The first one was more of a compilation of just the best projects, but we had, we, we, we sat down and said like, well, we need to find something that, you know, that all these projects share. And then we said like, well, not everyone is sharing the same thing. So we have to, to think about, you know, what specific projects we're proposing. And then we start to understand, you know, different topics that were within all these entries. And then we divided in six different categories. So as we previously uh, mentioned, you also have started publishing books outside of the Evolo exactly. world. How did that start? I mean, because, you know, we at Arconnect, we publish a magazine. We also run a bookstore. And I've noticed how difficult this industry is. It is. It's not, it's not an easy it is a brutal, industry. It is, so when I, I, so when, when I, you know, when I see you guys uh, not only publishing your own titles, but also publishing titles for other people on other, other topics, it's encouraging. Exactly. And also, I, I, yeah. So can you tell, can you tell us about how, how that got started? So like I said, you know, the first thing that we, we created the competition and the print magazine at the same time. And then we said, like, well, we want to grow into more of a, you know, editorial, you know, like how do we, you know, choose other projects besides, you know, the competition and, and the magazine itself. And then from some of the people that was writing for us, they said like, OK, you know, we have an idea for this book. And then are you guys interested? So we started to have a, an open conversation with, you know, different academics and writers in a sense, like. And, and they kind of like some proposals started to come in. At the same time, I was teaching at USC architecture for almost six years since 2009 till 2016. So uh, during studio instructor, stu studio instructor, uh -huh. exactly. You know, for different uh, core, you know, for core years, etc. And, you know, I met a lot of people there, also a lot of people in different universities. And they approached us like, oh, you know, you have this idea for a book, et cetera. Would you be interested in publishing it? And then we do a feasibility study, you know, how interesting the idea is. And then uh, if it's something that it's interesting and we see value in it, then, of course, yeah, we're interested in publishing it. And then from that, we have a partnership with, with Actar as well. They do the distribution for us uh, worldwide. So in that sense, that was, in a sense, a relief for us because we can focus on the content instead of sales itself. You know, how do we, you know, have all these copies in the different libraries or bookstores, et cetera. So that has been a relief for us. That's it. Oh, I can imagine. Yeah. The distribution yeah. and sales is, uh, it's hard to take on. Yeah. It's, it's, it's an entire job there, you know, so we, we really want to focus on the content and not in, in the sales per se. Yeah. Yeah. You published the, uh, the Jose Sanchez. Exactly. Is that right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we just, uh, we, we just launched the, uh, I was, I was not able to attend the launch because I was kind of like away for family, uh, I, I was away Business. too, so yeah. I, I couldn't make it either. <laughs> exactly. But, yeah, but it was uh, it was very it was very uh, very well attended and it is a, a lot of fun. Very from. exciting book. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Can you you mentioned you do a feasibility study before you embark on a on a new publication? Exactly. Can you talk about that? What that involves? Yeah, I mean the thing is that if you think about it, architecture we have a very small niche in a sense. You know, when you think about mainstream, let's say novel, you know, like a like a regular book, you know, selling 600, like 60,000 copies would be just kind of like the minimum for a general book. But if you think about 60,000 copies for an architecture book, it, was, it would be a huge success, you know? Usually runs are like in thousands, you know, like 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, you know, copies. Yeah. And that's kind of like, that. that's it, you know? So we have a very small niche and usually the books in, in architecture that sell the most, it's monographs. 
you know, mm -hmm. it's it's the work produced by a specific architect, you know, like Jark Ingels or, you know, Rem Kolhas, et cetera, you know, like a specific person, you know. And then if you go into a specific niche within the niche, then it just becomes like smaller and smaller and smaller. So what you see very often is that these books that are very specific in a niche, they are not really funded by the totally by the editorial. So it's a collaboration between different things. So the publishing company, they have a percentage of that, you know, of the, that money that needs to go into the project. But as well, you know, sometimes they have grants, you know, sometimes even universities, they uh, sponsor the project, etc. So besides mainstream architecture or monograph, it's very difficult for a book to be successful. And sometimes it's just a collaboration between different parties. Like I said, the publishing, maybe the academics, the university and grants. It's what makes the, the project a reality. And to be honest with you, it's not a business. I mean, it's not a, a business model. I mean, in architecture books, it's very difficult. It's very difficult to get them going. So it's really passion here. I totally agree. Yeah. If you, uh, if anybody out there thinks that they're going to be getting rich off of publishing architecture books, <laughs> think again. But there's so much value to it. Exactly. You know, outside of, you know, a return on financial investment. Exactly. And there's, uh, so I, I mean, I, I have firmly believed that there will continue to be value in, in print, in architectural publishing going forward. I mean, we're at an interesting place right now, in my opinion. That's part of the reason why we have kind of transitioned or not transitioned, but started moving into print and, and moving into like a physical space, selling books. Because I feel like the internet has started to kind of lose its its novelty exactly. that, that it had when when the web first came about. All of a sudden, everything was new. You had access to everything. And now we're starting to see a lot of recycled content, a lot of very low-level research involved in publishing because the, the online publishing model demands a certain type of approach that... Yeah has never really been applied to print. So I, I feel like people are are starting to move back towards, you know, traditional models and and print kind of as a um as a way to return to kind of more depth. Exactly. I mean, it's exactly what I think. So I think for me and, and for us at Evolo, we think that pretty much the content that is published on the web, it's there's there's not a lot of thought behind it. So it's it's more like a it's almost like a like an expanded Twitter in a sense. It's just about these are the news. And this is what it's happening, but it's not really an in-depth analysis of, of, of what happened with that project or, or what was the idea behind the project. It's just like, this is it, you know, this is the project, these are the pictures, and then we move into the next one and into the next one, into the next one. So there is no really in-depth analysis of what's happening, not just in terms of the project, but also in terms of a group of projects or a group of idea. So there is, there is no really discussion. So I think the possibility with, with a book, it's really to sit down and make a conscious effort to understand what is happening and, and discuss those ideas and really think about those ideas. And then the way in which people digest the information is also a very slow pace. You know, when you sit down and read a book, then you really are, you know, thinking about the question at hand, you know, and putting your own input into it. It's very difficult how you digest information on the web that it just, you know, it's it, it's very fast. You know, you, you read an article two seconds and then you forget about it. You go into the next one. And you're really not really paying a lot of attention into it. I mean, there's obviously a value about it. It's just so fast paced. And, and, and you know, in, in a few minutes, you can really under, you, you can really see a few projects or a few ideas. And then, but you really, sometimes you just forget about them. And it's just the next 10 and the next 20 projects, yeah. you know. Yeah, I mean, print publications have the opportunity to provide a more kind of wide arc contextual narrative to a number of pieces, you know, so you can take a, a wider perspective exactly. on, on a topic. 
Can you briefly just mention some of the other books that that Evolo has published or the the topics that that yeah. you've looked at? So it's it's very broad. So we had a one of our writers, uh, Andrew Mitchler. So he wrote a book about called Hyperlocalization of Architecture, and it's this is a very interesting book. This this book really specifically looks at different regions within the world and how architecture could be uh, hyperlocal, and in a sense, like for example. He was uh, having different chapters. Now, one chapter was Mexico, for example, and how a lot of architecture in Mexico is actually buried. No, it's actually underground. And what was the response about that, you know? And then for projects in Cascadia, you know, like why do they use wood? And then projects, I mean, what is the different things happening in Australia and Spain, et cetera? So what, that was one of the uh, of the books that we published a few years ago, Hyperlocalization for Architecture. Then uh, the Blind Spot Initiative by Jose Sanchez, we just published uh, a couple of months ago. And this was looking in a sense of how architects and designers are opening their own path within all this craziness, you know, like to get noticed, you know, it's just like a, a very interesting approach, you know, like competitions, et cetera, you know, like how do you stand out from from the community and, and share your ideas, you know, so that, that's another project. And then we have done other projects, uh, I mean, other books within USC as well. So moving on from Evolo, you you balance Evolo with your own design practice. Exactly. I remember a few years ago, you won a big competition with a, a chair design. Exactly. It seemed to be kind of a kind of referencing mid-century modern mm -hmm. uh, Eames, Bertoia style chairs called the parabola chairs. Parabola chair, exactly. Yeah. Where's that project at? Is that what happened with that? Yeah. So what happened with that project is that I always, I, I don't know, architects, I think we always want to design a chair, you know, and we look at, uh, it's, it's a very fascinating object. It's something that everyone can use. And, and it's something that a lot of ideas can go into a, into a small project or a small product. So I designed that chair 2013 and I launched it at the ICFF in New York, uh, International Contemporary Furniture Fair. And there it won an award, uh, the Studio Award. After that, I submitted it for a couple other awards and it won the Red Dot Award and the Good Design Award from the Chicago Museum of Architecture. From there, uh, it got a lot of traction. I was manufacturing the chair. I still manufactured the chair and it was selling, uh, it was selling well. And, you know, it's, uh, we got a different approach to go into retail. But to be honest with you, the problem with a big product is, is moving the big product. So it's very expensive to ship it. It's very expensive to create it, etc. So unless you have a, a, a big retailer, it's difficult to do it. So what I do right now, with at least with this chair, is that we are selling it locally in Southern California to people that have a you know mid-century homes, etc., that would like to, to have a product like this. Itself, the, the project is an investigation of uh, you know clean lines, etc., and how can we create a, a double curvature with uh, with uh, straight lines? So the chair is uh, actually there's two hyperbolic paraboloids in the chair, one that creates the seating and one that creates the the backrest. And everything it's it has a very fluid and very dynamic form, but it's everything built out of uh, straight lines, straight steel rods. So that was kind of like the idea behind it. And I was talking to Alex, you know, in, in your office here that. Uh, Two days ago, we got an email from uh, the Museum of Modern Art in New York that maybe they are interested in selling it at the at the you know at their shop. So that's something oh, wow. exciting, you know. After yes. so many years, you know, so it's quite an honor. It's, so we'll Loma. see. We'll see yeah. what happens. Yeah. What is it about architects and chairs? I guess it's I mean, you know about architecture. I mean, the thing about architecture is very slow paced. You know, it's it's like um, if you think about it, you know, really the the link between 
sometimes between the the architecture and the humans is actually something that it mediates you know your body with architecture and sometimes it's a chair you know so you sit down in a space you sit down in a bench you know and and that's pretty much where we spend a lot of our time so i think that has been a fascination for, for you know for architects you know like you said like eames etc you know since long time ago and then i think maybe the use of different concepts that that you were thinking about architecture, you can actually look it into other products, specifically chairs, and then make it a reality in materials, exploration of materials, tectonics, etc. So in your design practice, do you design architecture as well? I did architecture, uh, like I said, when I was doing um, with, with different offices. On my own, I'm, I'm pretty much doing uh, publishing and product design. So product design, um, you've done pens mm-hmm. in the past. And you are right now raising money on Kickstarter with a really exciting new project called uh, Escala. Exactly. Which uh, I'm looking at right now. Very, very nicely made. It, it's actually uh, surprisingly well crafted. I didn't even realize that that it existed yet. Because I, I guess I'm, I'm used to seeing things on Kickstarter yeah. and just assuming that nothing is going to be coming of this until, you know, until the, the, the money's raised. And yeah. maybe a couple of years later, you'll, you'll find something in your mailbox. But so this has already been produced. Let's first talk about the pens you made a few years ago. Yeah. So the, the first pen that we did is the Uno. It's called Uno mm-hmm. pen and it was because it was the first. And also what we thought about that pen is to create the most minimal pen that we can create. So it's pretty much two cylinders. And it's very interesting, but it's, it's, very, it's super slim. And then the holding barrel twists and then it's also the cap for the pen. So really when you are holding it, it has a, it, it's a larger diameter, so it's comfortable to use slightly the same width as a normal wooden pencil. But then the rest of the pen is just uh, to the bare bones, you know, it's just a cylinder, the aluminum cylinder or titanium cylinder, etc. So we launched that pen also on Kickstarter. It was very well received. I think we got over $40,000 or something like that for the pen. So it was, it was very successful. And after that, we we got approached by a lot of different uh, distributors worldwide, kind of like to start selling it at retail stores. So that was kind of like the beginning for this idea of uh, product design, specifically for writing instruments. And then I always had a fascination for fountain pens. So I've been doing also different projects for, for fountain pens. And now we have also distributors worldwide for those uh, fountain pens. And then a new, the new project is also fountain pen, but it's directed towards engineering and architects, which is the Scala pen. What is it about fountain pens that you like so much? What I like about them, it's also the, the connection with the idea. It's always, you know, I guess like coordinating a fountain pen is different than a ballpoint pen. It kind of like it gives you a little pause into what you are doing, you know, how you're holding the pen, what is the purpose of, of, of what you're doing if you're using it for sketching, are you using it for writing, etc. And the way that you hold it, it's always different the amount of pressure that you put on it. And it gives you a little time to, you know, to think about what you're really going to express on paper. If it's like your sketch, an idea for architecture or for any other design gender, or if it's for, for writing. So it gives you this pause at this moment, I think. So how did the idea behind Escala come about? So it's interesting to, that, you know, as architects, we use scale rulers, you know, and we also, it, it's either we have the scale in one hand and then we have the, 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 the pen on the other, and then we have to, you know, bring both to wherever we go, you know, or, or, or our place of work, you know. So the idea was to create one thing. And if you look into different pens, you know, there are a lot of pens that has a scale grading on the pen itself. 
But for me, it was always like crazy, you know, okay, I have a scale grading on the pen, but how am I going to use the pen and the grading at the same time? It's just like, you know, I need another object. I need another pencil or another pen kind of like to use the ruler, you know? Mm -hmm. So I said like, maybe we can create a pen that acts as, as both, you know, and, and the response to that was kind of like to have, you know, the scale ruler, the triangle, you know, the form of the scale ruler, and then the cylinder of the pen and then combine both into one, one object, let's say, with the most common imperial and, and metric scales engraved, laser engraved into the product. What kind of uh, response have you personally received since announcing this? So it has been great. Yeah, I mean, it has been great within the architecture community, obviously, you know, so there's, there's, uh, there's good response, you know, outside of the architecture and engineering community, but not as well received as, for example, the other products, you know, like our fountain pens, our ballpoint pens are, are much more, in a sense, well accepted, you know, beyond architecture. But on the other hand, this has been the most successful within our own, you within know. this relatively exactly. very small world that we live yeah, in. Yeah, no, but I think it has been quite successful. Yeah. And how much longer on the Kickstarter? It's just thing? one more day. We, we finish tomorrow. Oh, wow. Where are you at right now in terms of funding? Did you surpass your goal? Yeah, uh, the goal was $7,500. And then mm -hmm. I think we're approaching 40000 So oh, it's, wow. been, it's, been, it's, been, it's been good, yeah. But wow. not as good yeah. as the other fountain pens. I mean, it's, it's been good, but not as well, let's say. But we're very, you know, we're very honored that so many architects are, and engineers are interested in the, in the project. Wow, so you've uh, surpassed it almost like five times yes. the original. Yes, which is, cool. we're very excited about that. So a couple questions. So what's been the hardest, as you have a handful of pens, right? I think you have what, four or five pens, different pens out there on the market. Yes. What's the most challenging thing when you're considering the design of a pen? What's the, what's the thing that, that is the most complicated aspect for such a simple tool? One, and then is there a pen out there that you didn't design that you would think that most people wouldn't like, but you actually like it for, for whatever reason? And what would that one be? Okay. So... I think the, the most difficult part about uh, designing a pen, at least uh, for us here, at, I mean, uh, at Enzo, is the the writing part of the pen. So it's very specific. So for fountain pens, you have the nibs, and nibs manufacturers are very few in the world. So pretty much the majority of the nibs come from uh, Japan and from Germany. Nib? Uh, the nib, the, the point that you used to write. So that's, that's, oh, it's, that's very called a... it's called nib. Yeah. Nib. Okay. So, and, and that's very difficult to manufacture and it has a very specific tolerances and very specific, you know, things that you need to comply kind of like to make it, you know, a smooth writing instrument. So for us, that has been a, a challenge first, kind of like to find the, the best nib or the best, uh, for the product, et cetera. And then how do we use it within a specific geometry? that we were thinking or a specific use that we were thinking. Then for your second question, I think I'm fascinating about, there's a specific pen, it's called the Pilot Vanishing Point. This Pilot is the Japanese manufacturer of, of fountain pens and other writing instruments. And they have a, a pen that it's a fountain pen, but it has a retractable nib. So what happens is that it's a push-click pen, but a fountain pen. So you don't have a cap. So what you do is that you just click on the pen and then the nib can like... Uh, gets out of a, of a latch, like a latch opens and then the nib gets out. And, and I think that's a, a fascinating pen. So it's one of the, of the most interesting that, I mean, I would love to design a retractable, that is called retractable fountain pens. And there are only two in the market, one done by Pilot, which is called the Banish Point, and then another by Lamy in, in Germany. And that's, that's pretty much it. What's your opinion of the uh, Apple pen? Oh, the Apple pencil. So I guess design-wise, you see the clean lines about Apple, et cetera. 
you know, I, I think it's it's interesting, and I think has a it's a, it's about there's a, obviously a value out of it. Uh, you know, you, when you use it for all this uh, for touch screens and all the different uh, digital applications, I, I think it's great. I mean, I think it it, it works perfectly, and it has a, a tremendous value. So really, the difference here it, it would be like what has more value, like an analog tool or a digital tool. I think they have both have the same. It's just uh, it's just different uses. So for the digital realm, I think the Apple Pencil is it's it's great in terms of design and also in terms of, of use, definitely. How how do you balance your time between computer and paper? I, I guess I'm spending much more time in paper right now. I mean, really designing this 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 object, these products, it it doesn't take that that long in terms of computers. I mean, I'm like, I'm an architect by, by training, you know, so, so when you design a house, you have just spent tons of different hours in, in, in a computer, you know, like obviously in paper as well. But here you reduce the amount of time into a very small object into, so sometimes it's, it's really interesting what architects can do, you know, like you are designing so many things, so many parts of the building and a pen is just one part, let's say, of that building. So in reality, you spend the majority of your time sketching and ideas and, you know, thinking about it. And when you do it actually in the computer, it's it's not really, a, you know, a significant amount of time, you know, obviously prototyping and doing the construction or the product drawings, et cetera, for the manufacturer takes some time, but not, not, not nothing crazy, you know. How much time have you spent designing the pens before they're ready to, to start selling? So a few months, I guess the, the idea is always really fast, you know, and after that you do some uh, rapid prototyping, just like in architecture with uh, 3D printers, you send it to, I mean, if you want to do it in metal, you send it to one of those uh, 3D printing in metal uh, companies, etc. And then from there you jump into actual CNC machining with the actual material, it's either titanium, aluminum, etc. And then from there you jump into mass production and then and that's usually where we start with the funding because for mass production you need the tooling etc which is really expensive and uh i guess like the lead time for all this is about 6 months between the concept for a project into it's it, it's it's there in the market it sounds to me like there are some similarities between creating a book and creating an object like this. Have you noticed that? Yeah, the time limits, it's very similar. I mean, yeah. from obviously for a, the difference with a book, I guess it's in term of usually writing a book could be, could take very long. It could take years, you know, two, three years. But once the idea is there, then the, the process of producing the book from the layout, the graphic design, to the actual production of the book, printing and distribution, it's, it's pretty much the timeline. It's similar, you know, six mm -hmm. months, eight months. Yeah. Are there any other products that you would like to work on designing? I also love, besides chairs and writing instruments, I would love to design lighting fixtures and uh, tables. So mm -hmm. those, those, those things I would love to design. Yeah. So lighting. A, ta a table makes sense. If you've got yeah. a pen <laughs> and a chair. Then you, you, you need a table and then yeah. you light so you can work. So exactly. Yeah. So the, whole, the whole package. <laughs> exactly. And, and then you can just sit in your room and draw for the rest of your life on your chair, beautiful chair and table. And so, Ken, do you have a couple questions to ask? Sure. I'll throw a, a little curve. Um, <laughs> feel free to answer or not answer. So I usually ask a couple questions at the end, but the one thought that came to mind was, uh, was there any particular... Uh, first, I'll just ask, what are you listening to? And I guess the second one I would ask is, um, what is a particularly uh, overrated architect design product that's for sale that you just kind of don't find a whole lot of use for? Architectural product? I guess, you know, 
after designing this this chair, you know, what really I, I don't know if I'm gonna go in another direction with the question, but really something that that bugs me a lot is that a lot of the big companies, you know, like Herman Miller, Knoll, etc., I think they they stayed with some of the projects that were originally designed in the 50s, 60s, and and really the proposition of new things really it's 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 really small, you know. I think they have been living out of, you know, the in projects, like you said, and, and another, you know, Bertoya, et cetera, Erosarinen, et cetera, you know, all these projects that emerged, you know, so many years ago, you know, 50 years ago, 60 years ago, and still they are the core of their production. Still, they, and, and really bugs me that they are giving very little opportunity to new talent you know, to design new chairs, you know, to design new products and to really open, you know, the conversation. It's like they are playing really safe for, for what they, you know, uncovered 60 years ago. So I gonna really, because I don't have a specific project or I mean product that I, that I hate. I mean, if I think about right now, you know, but I, I hate the attitude towards not innovating and giving the opportunity to young talent. And that's the same thing with the architecture competition for for Iwolo, you know, what we want to do is to uncover this talent and give them an opportunity to shine or just an opportunity to express these ideas and, and have something new to talk about. You know, that's that's one of the... So not uh, enough innovation. Exactly. Not enough innovation and then living out of, you know, what happened 50, 60 years ago for these companies. That's something that really, I don't know. And people's asses are a lot bigger these days than they were back <laughs> when the games were around. Exactly. <laughs> so it's time to design new chairs. <laughs> And then what was the second question? I, I guess I... What are you listening to? You know, in terms of music, you know, I, I, I hear the classics, you know, I hear the Beatles, Radiohead, etc. So that's pretty much my, my, my core of my music. Yeah. These days. And also I have a daughter and a son. And to be honest, uh, she's into Taylor Swift, etc. So I had to, uh, I have to listen to that uh, for, you know, extended periods of time, both in the yeah. car and at the house. Oh, I, I can fully relate to that. My 12-year-old daughter is really into pop music. So I know way too much about pop right know, now than I'm, than I'm proud to admit. I know we took her to the, actually to the concert here, Taylor Swift in... Oh, at the at, Rose Bowl? At the Rose Bowl. Oh, my, my daughter was there too with it my was, wife. I think a hundred and something thousand. It was, it yeah. was completely packed. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it, it totally, it hooked my daughter on concerts. Now she's going to the Ariana Grande concert uh, soon and, and she, she can't get enough of that. How old are your kids? Uh, she, she's seven. Seven. So oh, she, so she was one. She, she was. Yeah, she's been taking uh, singing lessons. I think for three years now. So she's really into uh, yeah. singing. And she was like, "Oh, I want to watch uh, Taylor Swift, etc." So let's. All right, let's let's do it. So uh, yeah. we were here. Yeah, that was I think like uh, four months ago or yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. And then also the Ken usually also asks what our guests are reading, which I think it would be especially appropriate considering that you're in the publishing industry. So I, I read a lot of books in Spanish. So I'm reading La Fiesta del Chivo, which is, how do I call it? The, the goat party or something like that. Mario Vargas Llosa from Peru. Uh, that's what I'm reading right now. So I, I read a lot of books in Spanish. I, I like uh, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I like uh, Vargas Llosa, etc. As someone that grew up in uh, Mexico, did you watch Roma? Oh, yes. I, I, I actually love the film. I think it's a, it's a, it's a slow-paced film. But I love it, obviously, for uh, cinematography, but it really relates to what happens in a middle class in, in Mexico City. It's definitely, I mean, all these scenes of, you know, the car going into the garage really tight and, you know, and, you know, just banging the door. 
it happens and it happens all the time. It's, it's really, it's, it's, it's a really good movie for someone that grew up in that time in, in Mexico City, definitely. Yeah, a lot of my wife's family is in Lima and, uh -huh. and she spent a few years growing up in Lima. She said the same thing. It really, like, I, th I think all of Latin America kind of has a lot of the similar types of, uh, exactly. Of, of, you know, and the, and the relationship with, uh, with help and, and also, you know, really, I mean, what, what I loved about the film really here is that, you know, like life problems hit everyone, you know, they, they, they hit a person like that. Like you said, the people that work in, in your house or help you in your house and someone has a better uh, social position, but that's life, you know, like everyone gets hit by the, the same problems, maybe in a different way, you know, and a different way that you see it or you approach the problems. But as humans, we, we have the same, you know, in a sense, feelings and and uh, expectations and, and, and problems. So it was very uh, interesting to see that, yeah. you know. Uh, it was a beautiful film. Yeah. I know that some people I know had a hard time watching it because I think that if you go in expecting a lot of action. It's not going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> so I know that Evolo, uh, so your, your, uh, the Escala Kickstarter ends tomorrow, the day that this is going to be released. So I guess uh, if maybe people will have a couple more hours to get their uh, pre-orders in. Otherwise, it's going to be on the market pretty soon. And I think that the latest competition, the deadline just recently passed about a month ago. About right? uh, three weeks ago. Yes, exactly. And when are the winners going to be announced? April. April. Okay. Yes. So you can uh, you can watch out for those winners on Arconnect and Bustler, as well as uh, Evolo's website. We always look forward to covering the winners of Evolo. They're uh, predictably one of the more popular posts that we do each year because uh -huh. the the projects are so inspiring and 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 fascinating. Well, thanks so much for for coming to talk with us today, and uh, it's been great learning more about Evolo and and the kind of work that that you have been up to. Yeah, thank you so much for the invitation, and obviously thank you so much for the collaboration between Evolo, Arconnect, and Bustler all these years. You know, we're very grateful and. Uh, I think we're doing a great thing for architecture itself. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we, we are happy to support you guys for uh, as long as you keep on doing it. <laughs> Excellent. Thanks so much. All right, Ken. Sorry for, uh, for, for hogging the conversation most of the time. It's so much easier. No, it's right in your wheelhouse. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, uh, physical house where it's, it's, uh, sometimes it can be hard, easy to uh, forget that there's another host. <laughs> I just, that when you can't see them. I have uh, I have Zinio and uh, I have uh, the one Evolo that I have on there is uh, the one from um, 2012 and it's got Nick Cave's uh, sound suits in there uh -huh. and Perry Culper's project. It, it's it's one of my I mean if I had a shit ton of money I'd be buying like all of those magazines because it's you know, I think when I remember being out on uh, on the market are you still are you still making print or are you just doing electronic. Uh, for the ma for magazine, we're doing the same format, but it's it's only uh, digital. But for okay. uh, books itself, we we do print. So when did you stop uh, publishing? Uh, for the magazine, we stopped publishing two thousand sixteen in terms of uh, okay. physical, and then uh, we jumped only into into the digital okay. realm. And then for books, we we keep going into uh, print. It's a, it was when it was, when you did publish, it was one of my favorite ones to purchase and look at because it was such a, you know, it was, uh, it was always to me a very much, uh, more higher end like wallpaper because the, the, the images were so 
absolutely and the and the oh the editorial i mean just the, the way the magazine was laid out the it, everything was about it was so uh, impeccably done and it was one of my favorite things to look at so it still is on the on the digital it's still i mean it still reads just absolutely brilliantly so uh, thank you so much congrats. thank you all right thanks ken thank you paul talk to you soon thanks carlo thank you so much nice meeting you well that was our conversation with carlo ayala If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions about this website, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us and giving us a review on iTunes. Thank you, and talk to you next time.